Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to episode 334 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're peeling back the layers of traditional masculinity and diving deep into the emotional landscape of men. Have you ever wondered that does traditional masculinity impose limitation on emotional expression? Do men truly experience a narrower spectrum of emotions? Well, we're going to talk about all of this topic and we're going to unravel these questions and more in our episode today. Our guest today is David Khalili, a licensed marriage and family therapist, board certified sexologist, author of Mental Health Workbook for Men, and founder of Ruth's Relational Wellness, bring his extensive experience and knowledge to our discussion. With his unique background in psychotherapy, sex education, and cultural studies, David provides invaluable insights into the impact of cultural expectations and toxic positivity on emotional expression and relationship dynamic. We'll also explore the intriguing concept of soul murder. If you don't know what does that mean, make sure you're listening all the way to the end. We have a very interesting discussion about it. David has dedicated his career to helping men, couples, and multi-ethnic individuals navigate their emotional and sexual journeys. His work focuses on the intersections of sexuality, trauma, and culture, making him the perfect guest to shed light on today's topic. And for our listeners, we have an exciting offer. David created this very interesting program which is called Anxiously Intimate Online Course Bundle. In this bundle, he talks about how to manage your performance anxiety, how to manage anxiety in the relationship, and you can learn tons of great hands-on tips and tricks about relationship and your sex life. And if you use the code MOALI30, you're going to get 30% off of that code. All you need to do is simply visit his website, andrusacademy.com. The link will be in the show notes to take advantage of this offer. And I'm grateful for your support of our show because this is an affiliate link. So sit back, relax, and join us on this thought-provoking journey into the world of masculinity, emotions, and relationship. All right, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome a fellow therapist, sex therapist, David Khalilid on our show. David, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Dr. Molly. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for asking. Well, I know that you recently published the book and part of the book you talk about kind of relational aspect of kind of male, male's experiences and some of the challenges that they have. I certainly see the same pattern of like many of like my clients that they struggle with during our sessions. So tell us a little bit about the traditional idea of masculinity. I know you talk about it in the book. When we say that, what what comes to your mind based on your experience and working with clients? Absolutely. Yeah. When I think of traditional masculinity or the norms that are involved in that, I think of, you know, the the, the rigid 
what's acceptable, like the, the acceptability politics of what a man can express, what he can feel, what he can share, and who he can rely on. And so, you know, there's lots of mixed messages around expressing yourself in certain ways, but then only doing it for yourself and only relying on your own needs or your own skills to get by. But really what ends up happening is that these men end up relying on the people that are close to them for emotional support and not reaching out to friends or other loved ones. And they just rely on one person. And so, you know, in this, they end up just kind of making themselves very small, the, what they can express, how who they can be. And, you know, it wasn't until like the last 10 years or so where I realized that in my own upbringing, because of the, the limits that I had put on what I can express and who I can be, that I was actually dissociating for a lot of the, my like twenties because I can only fit into a, a rigid box. And so, yeah, the, these norms end up being just places where men can't express who they actually are. I agree with you. I think with my clients, I see that there are some disadvantage when it comes with kind of labeling emotion, talking about emotion, how comfortable you are with that parts of yourself. And there's this narrow kind of spectrum of the emotions that are okay. And like, it's, it's hard right. to communicate if you're not allowing yourself to experience emotions, communicate that with your partner. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What are some of the kind of like biases you experience? And in general, what behaviors are unacceptable for quote unquote boys? Yeah. I, you know, so I grew up in a multicultural household. My, my father immigrated from both of my parents immigrated. My father immigrated from Iran, my mom from Austria and, you know, many other cultures within my family. And so I grew up with a wonderful mix of different norms and expectations, but it also kind of sent a lot of mixed messages. Um, you know, I experienced a lot of witnessing older male relatives being told not to express certain emotions. You know, I can think of a specific example of a death of a family member where the the daughter was allowed to wail and cry at the funeral, but the son was pushed aside and forced to really shove his emotions down. And I have vivid memories of other male relatives telling him, you know, you need to be strong for your sister. You need to be strong for other people. And what I saw him do was, again, dissociate. He just kind of retreated into his own space so that he could be this kind of stoic rock, this grounded thing that many men are supposed to be or are assumed to be. But what ends up happening is they get disconnected from every other emotion that they're experiencing. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting? We often hear this kind of a story of a like young boy losing his father and they say like, now you're the man of the household, which how harming, right. how harmful is that? Yeah, you end up losing your childhood. You don't, you're, you're not able to play. You know, there's many instances of young men being treated, young boys being treated as men and giving a lot of responsibilities that they're not ready for or you know, that their development is, is not there yet. And so then, yeah, they, they miss out on so many experiences, so many parts of themselves, learning about themselves, learning about their pleasure, learning about their boundaries, their needs. I think that's a big piece that gets shut off with this limitation is, you know, the men, they don't learn about themselves. They don't learn how they work or what they like or don't look. Where do you think these traditional masculine ideas are coming from? Because whatever we have at times, it was serving us. And I'm kind of curious, what's your hypothesis about that? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's been really hitting me that you know, we're at 8 billion people. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that that's, there's a tremendous amount of people where we're, we're really starting to explore what it's like to have different, different values, different ideals. And what ends up happening is, you know, some of these ideals that worked for, for some are not working for the majority anymore. And things need to, things need to shift and change. And we are seeing the, the, de 
you know, the detrimental effects of being restricted in, in your belief. But I think, you know, in the past when, when there could be a more of like a, a provider role, you know, I think that that was just kind of relegated to men in a certain way based on, you know, beliefs at that time. But over time, you know, we're really are opening up to what is acceptable and what is allowable these days. And I wonder that again, I see it's impacting a lot of people, especially in the relational, personal and relational context for people who are socialized kind of with this masculine masculinity kind of ideas and paradigms. How do you think it impacts their relationships? I think that they, yeah, they enter in these relationships with expectations that they assume are are normal or they assume that everyone has or their partner has specifically you know we all i love the quote by Anne lamont that uncommunicated expectations are resentment under resentments under construction and you know when I you enter that. in a relationship yeah <laughs> when you enter in a relationship with with those types of expectation that you know as a man you know, and I can typically think of in straight relationships as like a straight man, you know, I should be doing this and this is my role. And then my wife should be doing X, Y, Z. And then when it goes out of those norms, it's treated with anxiety or anger or control, you know, that doesn't allow for much playfulness or expression. I think also what ends up happening in these, in these relationships is, you know, a, a sexual script gets played out where they, they follow the script of either from porn or from past relationships or their own expectations. But with men in particular, they're, they're told that they're supposed to give their female partners an orgasm rather than communicate and learn from each other and that they're supposed to enter in these sexual experiences somehow knowing everything. But in reality, you should be interacting with the other person that you're with and not just kind of performing, but actually having some communication, obviously. Well, I agree with you. I think even the concept of vulnerability, I know my husband and I were joking about it. My husband, although he kind of grew up in LA, he said, I didn't know how how much vulnerability is sexy for women. <laughs> now I have this secret <laughs> weapon because men think that it's just like it's, it's a sign of weakness or something that like right. you don't share. And in reality, for what many women, it's really incredibly sexy to see your partner vulnerable. Yeah, it, it, it's right. It, it, there's that mixed message again. You know, men are told to, to keep restrained, keep stoic, keep it all together. But in reality, their partners are looking for that that vulnerability. They want to know who they are. They want to know who you're interacting with, ins and outs. What I tell my male clients about their mind and their body is that, you know, you're a whole world. You get to explore yourself. You're not just relegated to this one piece of yourself, whether it's your penis or whether it's anger or whether it's joy. You you get to really expand your whole understanding of yourself and you should. Absolutely. Do you watch Ted Lasso, the yeah. series? <laughs> <laughs> there was this scene that Keely, the girlfriend, was like masturbating to the boyfriend's scene of crying, which I think was just so telling that so many people are interested in seeing their kinder, more vulnerable part of their partner. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the more you can get that reinforcement, the, the better it is. I, I have experienced men and worked with men and, you know, myself or other male friends where they do express themselves. And then the person that they're expressing themselves to doesn't respond. And it's usually because they, you know, A, don't know how to respond or they're not used to men being vulnerable and, and opening up or, or C, the man doesn't know how to really express themselves in a, in a healthy way or in a communicative way and just kind of expects their partner to be there whenever they unload. I absolutely kind of like see what you're talking about, kind of like people know what to say. Even I have clients that we work together in therapy to help them be more relational and show their vulnerability. And like they tell me, like I shared this in the group 
that they had and it was dead silence, <laughs> which is like the <laughs> worst like, nightmare. So how, what are some of the guidelines you have for people when they want to share something vulnerable that they want to be heard? Of course, we have no control over how people receive it, but is there a more relational version of things that we can communicate as with people? Yeah, I have a, an approach that I've adapted from DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. They have, you know, this well-known approach called Dear Man, but I've added a few, a few pieces to it where, you know, Dear Man talks about describing what you're feeling, asserting that it's important for you to express this, expressing your emotion, reinforcing it, being mindful, all that good stuff. You can look it up online for the further information. But what I've added to it is, to organize, you know, to, to really set aside time to have this conversation again, so that you're not just bombarding and surprising your partner with or whomever with this information or with this topic to say, Hey, when's a good time for us to talk? That way you're setting yourselves up for success. You know, you're knowing that you're going to be grounded. You're going to be okay. Then I suggest that, you know, you tune in with yourself and think about what you want to, how you want to show up. If you're someone that is normally aggressive or anxious, you know, maybe try to focus on being calm, being grounded. If you're someone that is combative a lot or, you know, asks leading questions or rhetorical questions, then encourage yourself to be more curious and open. In this way, it really kind of like sets the stage for that conversation. And then you can follow the Dear Man protocol as it is. And then I always recommend at the end of that, it's not included in Dear Man, but at the end of that, I want you to turn to your partner and ask them how they're doing because they've just given you a lot of time and emotional energy to support you, hear you out. And, you know, to respect the relationship and your partner, you should give them equal time. It doesn't have to be right after if you're, you know, still emotional, but you should in that time set aside time for your partner to also express themselves. I love that. And I think it's kind of like adding the timing piece is really important because what often happens that when we're feeling shameful about something, we just want to kind of blur it out. And I have clients that they blurred out things on like as the kids are entering the car or like, you know, the worst possible time. So we really yeah. don't give ourselves an opportunity to be hurt. Like we're rejecting ourselves even before sharing the information with our partners. Right. And as you and I know, you know, the doorknob comments that can happen in, in session. And, and that's a great, you know, a great sign of, you know, okay, this is something that's really vulnerable for them. And they're, they're, they're making an attempt to express it. But yeah, I've worked with countless couples where, you know, in, in the straight couples where the partner, male partner says, you know, while I'm expressing myself, I'm being vulnerable. It's like, yeah, but I was in the middle of work and you just kind of walked in on my office and started expressing yourself and didn't give me the respect or the boundaries or give me opportunity consent. And so I'm, I really try to encourage that back and forth kind of communication rather than a transactional sort of thing that can happen in a lot of Western relationships, especially. Absolutely. And I think kind of like knowing that they can be the most skillful person when you're sharing these things. And sometimes your partner might not be ready to hear it. They don't have the right response because they think it requires a certain skill set to be able to receive the vulnerability, especially if they share is something that's unexpected for people. Right. Yeah. Again, you want to set them up for success and yourself up for success. And I think the one thing that's also important is that if you are someone that like maybe like we all make mistakes, like the, your partner was vulnerable with you and you didn't have the kind of like right response, then it's not a one shot and done. I would follow up and say like back then I just didn't didn't know how to think about it. This is what I'm feeling right now. So you you will have an opportunity for repair. I agree. Yeah, because the shame can really play a, a huge role in this. Again, I've talked to countless guys where, you know, we talk about this big conversation that they want to have with a partner or a boss or whomever or, or, or kid. 
And then they make the attempt and it's really anxiety provoking for them and it doesn't go as well as they thought it would. And then they say, well, I tried, didn't work. There it goes. And I say, okay, well, how about the next time? What, what can help with this next time around? But, you know, the, the overwhelm or the anxiety or just the flooding, you know, the emotional flooding of not being familiar with those, those emotions or those experiences. And my heart goes out to them. Like it can be really overwhelming and can really shut them down. But there is usefulness and kind of. I, I say, push yourself to the edge of discomfort. So you're not flooding, you're just kind of nudging it a bit. I agree with you. And I think if, especially if you haven't grew up in the family and the environment that allow you to be relational or show vulnerability, it's a skill that you, first of all, you have to all have your own back, but then work on kind of like getting better and be more comfortable with, with the response. I know one of the things that you talk about in the book, which is really, really interesting is the concept of soul murder. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Soul murder is actually a term from bell hooks. In her book, The Will to Change, which is one of my favorite books of all times. And is like, I don't use this word lightly. It's a transformational book. <laughs> I've, I've seen it really transform myself and also my clients and colleagues. And so in the book, she has this great quote defining soul murder. She says, talking about the young men, he learns that his core feelings cannot be expressed if they do not conform to the acceptable behaviors sexism defines as male. Asked to give up the true self in order to realize the patriarchal ideal, boys learn self-betrayal early and are rewarded for these acts of soul murder. And what, the way that I see it is soul murder is is a, a killing off parts of yourself in order to be accepted by the majority or the mainstream. And it's I think the 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 term is really powerful and appropriately powerful because it is it's it really is truly killing off parts of yourself whether you're killing or or others are killing it and what ends up happening again as I, I mentioned earlier is it it restricts you know you you just cut off certain parts of yourself and then you're only left with this small little acceptable box making it you know almost impossible to have a full emotional expression or life how how does that show up in relationships yeah I think. I think it can show up as, you know, some, some men shutting down at, at certain reactions, you know, whether their, their partner has, you know, a bad day or a reaction and they don't know how to respond. And so they just shut down and say, well, I don't know what you're doing and then kind of dismiss them. Yeah. As I'm saying that, you know, kind of the projections that can be put onto others of, well, I'm, I'm holding back myself. Why can't you? I see that quite a bit where, you know, that projection of what should be expected. There's also a big disconnection. You know, there's a disconnection with yourself if, if you've had to engage with soul murder, but also a disconnection with your partner. Because as you were saying earlier, you know, partners love vulnerability to get to know you. But if you're not vulnerable enough to share that, then there's so much that gets missed. There's so much that gets lost in that connection in the relationship. And my experiences with myself and with clients is that if you are shutting part of yourself, the, the, your window of tolerance for kind of like being receiving emotions are just very narrow. These are the people they don't want to talk about emotions and any relationship, even if it's your children, you it's important to be able to have the ability to hear emotion and be relational. And that can really impact people's level of connection. And I also see it showing up as this toxic positivity <laughs> that people think yes. like trying to push that everything is great. But in reality, like there might be real issues. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. You know, it makes me think about, you know, toxic positivity. It, it ignores the reality of, of the, the trials and tribulations, the, the, the shit that's going on in, in life and the world. And, and when you ignore that, when you deny that, that compounds the trauma, you know, it makes the person feel really isolated, alone. You know, it's gaslighting or crazy making to feel like, well, you know, if everyone else is seeming like this isn't a problem, then there must be something wrong with me. 
Absolutely. You know, sometimes I even see it as a form of defense mechanism in sex therapy sessions, like the partner want to come, like they had, they are in sexless relationship for a long time. And the partner trying to say that, like, no, it's not, we don't have an issue because of like, you know, how this is, this is, is great in our experience. And which, as you said, it can invalidate the other's partner's struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I hit, get hit up against that defensiveness, I try to talk around it to see, okay, what is, what's going on? And so I ask, like, okay, if it was a problem, what would that mean for you? What would that mean for you, the relationship, your partner to see just what is the fear or the anxiety beyond, beyond that? Such a great strategy. Well, I know you also talk about the, how can it impact like people's nervous system conflict and sexual responses when, when we have kind of like this idea of like understanding of max masculinity and its impact in the relationship. Yeah, I really think that something that I've been saying lately is that talk therapy can only do so much. And so actually at, at Rouse Relational Wellness, where I run my group practice, we're going to start to integrate really whole person treatment and bring in acupuncturists and pelvic floor physical therapists to really incorporate what we're learning about, you know, in our psychology and our sexuality with our body and our nervous system as well. Because I've just found that, you know, through understanding our, our nervous system and our conflict styles and our sexual response styles, you get a real kind of a delicate, nuanced understanding of who you are and how you work. And that's a real treat. You you should understand that in your life. And so through understanding your nervous system, you get to track when you start to get flooded, you track when you start to be calm, and you get to track the difference between those two and how they shift so that you can control as much as you can control, but you can also understand what's happening to your body so you don't feel like you're just a buoy out in the stormy ocean. And then with the conflict styles, you start to learn which styles or skills can help and hinder or damage. And then you can really understand, okay, like I really get like to get into the specifics when I work with couples and, and, and people and try to figure out, okay, what is the exact moment when you shift from being happy to slightly agitated to aggressive and angry, and then work on those minute moments to see, you know, how we can arrange the nervous system or just understand the nervous system or what you can do with your communication skills. And then the sexual response cycle, I think a lot of that is acceptance and working against expectations, you know, especially for men, you know, there's this expectation to get hard right away, stay hard for a long time. And then when you orgasm that you can get back and go on, you know, in minutes. But by understanding your sexual response cycle for who it is for you, and, you know, and as uh, Emily Nagoski talks about the spontaneous desire versus reactive desire, responsive desire, you get to understand and accept, okay, this is just who I am. It's not good or bad. It doesn't make me better or worse than anyone. I can get to love myself and appreciate how I, how I work in relationships and make the necessary changes in order to be in a healthy relationship. Well, I, I like that you were talking about like so many of things that you brought up that was excellent. But also I, I think this kind of idea of sexual script and how our kind of sexual responsiveness plays a role in it. Because if the expectation is that the, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, the male partner is initiating every single time and they have a hard penis and it comes on demand which that's not a reality for many, many men in all different stages of life, that can be very discouraging for everyone involved. Right. Yeah, it puts so much pressure on on those few moments before sex starts to say, okay, is everything going to go all right? Rather than allowing the spaciousness for things to literally go up and down, for emotions to go up and down, moods to go up and down, for there to be a spectrum of experiences. Martha Cowpey, who is a sex therapist in the Midwest, 
and wrote the book on polyamory and or one of the many books on polyamory. She talks about linear model of sex versus circular model of sex. And I, I find that to be a really helpful way of thinking about this because the linear model of sex, you know, relies on each preceding step to for the next step to work. And, you know, it starts with like eye contact to kissing, to hand holding, to fondling, oral sex, penetrative sex, then orgasm. And if one of those doesn't work, then people treat it like, okay, well, we're done. Sex is over. We're frustrated. We're just going to go into our separate corners. But the circular model of sex says there's a whole range of options that you can do. And I, what I call it, the smorgasbord of delight or the, the, the 1970s round bed of delight, you know, where you can just imagine that all the, all your options are around the, the edge of the bed and you can just kind of pick and choose as you'd like. And if you want to play with hand sex, it doesn't have to lead to orgasm. You can go to massage. You can go to kink. You can go to anal play, whatever you would like, but it doesn't have to rely on one thing. It does help if you know yourself and you know your partner enough or you can communicate with your partner. If you can hold steady through the ups and downs, that, that helps with the circular model of sex. But it really does open up the pressure. It takes away the pressure to, to perform or to be a certain way. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I hear from people that they think sexual kind of like experience that people have an exploration date, right? Like after certain ages, you're not going to be able to have sex or like after, like when you are in this stage, it's not happening. But if it's not happening, it's just because we're not updating our scripts, right? That like if in our twenties, like our partner was like easily getting aroused and maybe right now there's requires more stimulation, different kind of approaches. So I think that's a really important conversation for people to have. But if you, you're not able to have those vulnerable conversations, as we were talking about earlier, with these right. challenges that some people have in traditional masculinity ideas, then that can make things even more complicated. Absolutely. Yeah, there becomes this mind reading expectation of, you know, well, my partner should know what I like, or I should know what my partner likes. But there's, there's a lot of discomfort just talking about sex, as, as you are well aware. <laughs> And you know what's interesting is sometimes people, when they open up, like when they, when they kind of hear these challenges in their relationship, shame show up. And I know you have like some practical strategies for people to work through that. So I want to, I want us to hear more about that. Yeah. I, you know, obviously like individual or group therapy is, is really important. I, I found that group therapy is really good because you can also, there's many mirrors in the group. Right. And you can see how, how others respond to you, how you respond to others. You can also experience what it's like to give support and receive support and experience what it's like to be vulnerable in the face of others. I also really appreciate, you know, something that I talk about in my workbook is a very simple kind of practice of working against shame because shame is something that tells us that we as a whole person are bad. Right. And so, and that's normally triggered by an event or behavior. And so what this does is it helps separate the behavior from who you are as a person. And so if you're upset because you missed a deadline or you're upset because your erection went down, you can say, just because I did X doesn't mean I am Y. So it can say, just because I lost my erection doesn't mean I'm a bad lover. Or just because I lost my erection doesn't mean I'm a bad man. So it, this, what it does is it, allows you to be multiple multiple parts, like internal family systems, allows you to make mistakes. Another thing that I really appreciate doing is helping helping them identify who in their life that they do trust and that they can be vulnerable with, and then asking their permission if they can practice on them, and then sharing with them more and more aspects of their life or their thoughts that feel shameful to them, again, to kind of push the edge of discomfort. And while they're talking about it, to track for themselves how it feels how, what, what sort of sensations come up for you? When are you wanting to get out, out of the conversation? When are you wanting to 
talk, dive in more. And again, to really just understand who you are and how you are in that system. But I, I found that, you know, working against all or nothing thinking as well can really help with the shame too and allow you to be multiple parts of yourself. So many great suggestions. And it, I always also talk about the kind of like identifying the origin story. Sometimes we don't have that luxury of identifying it because sometimes it starts very, very early on. But kind of identifying where does this shame belong to, it can help us to kind of have more compassion for ourselves. And that that's also can be another tool. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I talk about sometimes that the shame can have like a voice, you know, the inner critic, as some of us call it. And and what I really recommend is to to try to decipher where did the messages of that inner critic come from? It didn't, didn't wasn't created out of a vacuum. So who in your life were kind of encouraging those messages and helped you internalize those messages for better or worse? And then to, you know, by by identifying that and saying, okay, I don't need you here anymore. I see you, inner critic. You can take a step out. You can wait outside the bedroom. Such a good, uh, good way of putting it, kind of like identifying it, labeling it and kind of like gently kind of like shifting and pivoting to to what you're doing. And kind of, I like the idea of like leaving it out of the bedroom or sometimes like, you know, we cannot separate from from that part of ourselves, and we can just like observe it and let it be <laughs> inside the right, bedroom. But right. we're not <laughs> ruminating like with that still kind of like going back and forth in that story. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about how, yeah, mindfulness really helps with rumination and mindfulness-based stress reduction really helps with rumination because it helps you just be in the moment, not try to control and just to kind of witness what's, you know, these thoughts that are happening. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's very common with men who are kind of grew up in more traditional household is this kind of like anger being front and center for them. Like it's the only emotion that they're comfortable sharing is anger. So tell us more about that. What is the solution for, for people who that's the, who they experience that kind of like interaction? Yeah, I would, you know, I, I would uh, again identify, you know, where was it modeled? How was it modeled for them? What did it feel like? for you when when you were witnessing that when you were either on the receiving end of the anger or you were witnessing someone else on the receiving end of the anger what did you tell yourself in those moments you know i'm never going to act like that or i want to act differently and then how do you want to change now how do you want to make some some adjustments in your life i'm also really into you know a lot of modalities do this but really into helping men clients identify their own values for themselves so that they can be guided by their own values by helping them identify their values, they can then, you know, really follow them, follow in alignment of who they are rather than how they've been told to act. I think it's incredible to use our values as a kind of compass of deciding what kind of action I want to take right now versus repeating the same pattern that we got, we kind of like inherited from our previous generation without updating that script. And maybe as we talked about, like back then it was effective for them, but right now, how is it helping you with your relationship, with sexual life that you want? So I think there's nothing with, uh, nothing wrong with uh, re-examining that. And I love the idea of group therapy, especially I think for same sex group therapy, like men's group, because I think it helps people that ability to practice this difficult skill in a more challenging environment versus if it's a co-ed. Do you see if it makes a difference? Yeah. I mean, I run, I run a couple of men's groups and, and I really see that, you know, especially for, for straight men or, or men that have relied on, on women to be their emotional support. It's a, it's an unfamiliar territory for them to, to be vulnerable, to, to share these, these emotions to, and also to share influence or to share support. You know, in some of the groups, the guys share, Hey, you know, what you, what you talked about last week, I tried to do that in my own life and it really helped. It really, it, you know, thank you. 
And just to, I think that's a really humane connecting moment, a relational moment that that's lovely to say what you experienced or what you shared had positive influence on my life. Thank you for that. You know, and a lot of times that can be seen as too vulnerable or not masculine to say like, yeah, I'm learning and I'm trying and I appreciate those who are helping me. Well, David, I know your book is filled with tons of great exercises and kind of like really actionable tips and kind of practical tools that can people that people can implement. Tell us more about that. If people are interested to learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, the book is called Mental Health Workbook for Men. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's also on my website, davidfkhalili.com. You can also find us in my group practice, Rouse Relational Wellness at rousetherapy.com. We offer therapy in San Francisco and all over California. Excellent. And you you also wanted to share some something else with our listeners. So tell us more about that. Yeah, we have a anxiously intimate bundle on my, my website browseacademy.com. It's three courses, 30% off, but you get an extra 30% off if you use the code Moali30. And it's three courses, too anxious for intimacy, talking to a partner about performance anxiety and mindfuck. They're designed to kind of work together to help you learn how to understand anxiety for your own sexual life, how to talk about it, and then some guided tools to work through the anxiety either with yourself or with a partner. Excellent. So the link to the bundle will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. It's It was lovely to have this conversation with you and hopefully we'll have you in future on our show. Thank you so much, Dr. Mawali. It's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed talking to David. We really dug deep into the world of traditional masculinity. We look at how it can sometimes limit emotional expression and even affect our relationship. But here's a thought. Let's imagine a new kind of masculinity, one that's open to a full range of emotions, encourage communication, and isn't afraid of vulnerability. Sounds great, right? And guess what? Research is showing that this kind of open, intimate masculinity can lead to stronger, more fulfilling relationships. It's all about breaking free from outdated norms and creating healthy emotional and sexual connections. If you don't know where to start, make sure you're heading to our show notes, getting David's course, and you will have tons of great tips and tricks on how you can cultivate this brand of masculinity. And oh, before I forget, we've got something exciting. If you're a licensed therapist in California and you're interested in joining a boutique practice, we are hiring. We are on the lookout for folks who are passionate about making a real difference in relationships and also mental health of diverse communities. If that sounds like you, check out the link in the show notes to apply. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Let's keep challenging the norms, keep learning, and keep growing. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.